If you would turn to First First Kings chapter eight, and we'll read read from chapter eight, verse forty-six this morning. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and you deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they have been taken captive, and repent, and make supplication to you in the land of those who have taken them captive, saying, We have sinned, and have committed iniquity, and we have acted wickedly. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who have taken them captive, and pray to you toward their land which, thou have, which you have given them to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house which, you, which I have built for your name, then hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your inheritance, which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace, so that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant, to the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you have separated them from all the peoples of the earth as your inheritance, as you did speak through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers forth from Egypt, O Yahweh God. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him ten thousand talents. But since he did not have the means to repay... His Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back whatever you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed to him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. If you would join me on the back of your bulletin 
and reading together from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We'll continue our sermon series in this Advent season, meditating upon the Lord's Prayer. And today we will be considering the part where we ask our Savior to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Please pray with me. Almighty Father in heaven, we're grateful that you give us your word We're grateful that you have given us your word made flesh. We're grateful that Jesus has come to take on our flesh to live in this world a perfect life, righteous and holy, demonstrating who you are. And even more so in his death, where we see your love for sinners, where we find our forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would be be with us, and that we would see more clearly how glorious and compassionate a God you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. When the angel comes and appears to... Joseph, he says this in verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the good news given, proclaimed to Joseph, was that he will bear a son. And this son will be the salvation of the people Israel from their sins. But this son will also be the Emmanuel, God with us. How God is now going to enter into history, take on flesh, and now be with his people and provide forgiveness. And for this to be a good news, for this to be something new, it means that prior to this, God was not with us, was not with his people, and that forgiveness did not reign over the house of Israel. Israel was called to be God's son and his servant. In the Exodus, when Israel was in bondage and enslaved to Egypt, God called Israel his son, adopted Israel as a son, and brought Israel out because of the great compassion that he had for his son, out of bondage and delivered them from the hand of the mighty evil one, Pharaoh. And he delivered them according to God's promise to Abraham years before. And with whispers and pictures of what God promised Adam in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the, the son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And God, being mighty in power, was showing that he has all power to crush the wickedness and the evil and the mighty one. God brought Israel out into the wilderness and then began to teach his son what it means to be a son of God, to be holy as God himself is holy. Of course, God is holy, and no sin can come before God. And so a lot of the rules and laws that Israel learned, namely through Exodus, was that they were unclean and that they were filled with sin. The sacrificial system was enacted to remind Israel that over and over and over and over again, they are wicked and they are sinning against God. And enable the, to be able to come into God's holy throne room, they would have to shed the blood of an animal. To draw near unto the Lord required death. So God gave this means by which they could approach and we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, it was similar to what was happened in Leviticus. If the people sinned, Solomon was praying, if the people sin and pray to you towards your presence, if they draw near to you, confessing their sins, hear their prayer and forgive. Israel, though, like Adam, heard God's words and continued to disregard their, his word disregarded the law, disregarded the sacrifices, disregarded the Sabbaths, disregarded how to treat one another in compassion as God had treated Israel. God would show compassion on them, but Israel would continuously rebel against God to the point where God sent them out of the promised land. He sent them away out of the land of Canaan that he had promised Abraham so many years before and into the hands of an enemy again. This time it wasn't Egypt, it was Assyria and Babylon. This time 
Israel in captivity, oppressed. They were away from God. The temple, which was the the house of the Lord, was back in the land of Canaan, and Israel and God were far apart. Just like Adam was kicked out of the sanctuary garden, away from God, we know that sin deserves death. And that death is an everlasting exile away from God's presence. Israel, now in captivity, because of their own sins, they knew it. The prophets spoke to them this way. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 59... It speaks to the fact that they are in captivity because specifically of their wickedness. Behold, in verse 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously and no one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works." Their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. The prophet speaks, the Lord speaks to his people Israel and says, the reason why you are far away The reason why there is a separation between you and your God is precisely because you are wicked. Your mouth speaks wickedness. You love the violence. You run toward evil. Israel was absent from God's presence because of their sin. But Isaiah also gives good news. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah prophesies, which is picked up in the Gospels with regards to John the Baptist, how John the Baptist is preparing a way for the Lord. And these verses are referenced. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she is received of the Lord's hands double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Israel is in sin, they are in wickedness, they're in exile away from God's presence. And the only thing this time that can save them is forgiveness. 
God can deliver them from a mighty hand from an oppressor. He's proven that with Egypt back in the Exodus. But now God needs to do that, but also to draw his people back to himself. What that means is the people have to have their sins forgiven. To come back into God's promise, to come back into his presence, Israel's sins needs to be forgiven. And he promises that he is coming. That God is coming to save his people from their iniquity and transgression and sin. That God and his people will one day again be together. That Israel will be present with their God and have this forgiveness. God is coming to save his people. And he shows and, and bring, teases this out a little further in chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah, where he says precisely how the sins are going to be forgiven of the people. It's going to be through a suffering servant who bears the iniquities of the people. Blood will be shed because of Israel's sins. But because that blood is shed, they will again be present with their God. This is the story of the good news. This is the story of Jesus' birth. That God now comes to be with us. Emmanuel. And with that, with that reconciliation between God and man, comes forgiveness. For us to be back into God's presence from that spiritual exile that all of humanity has fallen into, we must be forgiven. We must have God come be present with us. These two ideas, God appearing as king and forgiveness now reigning, culminate, come together, crash together in the person of Jesus. So when we get to the Gospel of Matthew in our text in chapter 6, in, when Jesus is sitting on the mountain delivering this sermon to his disciples and more and more people come gathering around listening to these words of this Emmanuel, they're hearing this new Israel, this God's king come God himself coming in, into flesh to gather around himself a new people. God himself is teaching them a new way of how to be God's people. And he says that their righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so he teaches us how to pray. And we've gone through the first parts of that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is Matthew 6, 9 through 15. So he says here, teaches us how to pray, Father, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. He doesn't say, in Matthew at least, forgive us our sins, but we know that sin is a debt. 
Israel was indebted to God. Adam was indebted when he sinned. Sin is a debt. What God has done is he has given Adam and he has given us a multitude of his good gifts. If we just think of Adam in the garden, God gave him life. God made him in his image, his hands, his feet, his eyes, his mouth, his ears. He gave him a sanctuary where he could meet with him. He gave him dominion over all of the world. And if Adam were to misuse any of those things that God had given him, that God had given him as a faithful steward and son, if Adam were to do anything wrong, it would be destroying God's property. It would be destroying something that God owns and has authority of. It would be like handing a brother or a sister your laptop and them going and taking it and using it as a hammer and breaking it. That's what Adam did in the garden when God said, don't take of my stuff. Adam took of God's stuff. He destroyed creation. It's a debt that now Adam has to pay. And because this debt is against God and God is an infinitely holy God, our debt is infinite. It's unpayable. So sin is a debt. And so we pray to God because he is the one who's given us life and given us all things. We pray, forgive us our debts. During Israel, during Jesus's day in Israel, this would mean to ask for forgiveness to the Lord. This would mean going to the temple often, a lot, and offering up sacrifices just like was laid out in Leviticus. Blood sacrifices to cover the transgressions and sins that they individually and collectively as a people have committed. Jesus in his ministry though, he goes to the, to the temple twice. At the beginning of his ministry, in John chapter two, and then at the end of his ministry as he enters into Jerusalem in his final week. And he goes to the temple where Israel should be coming to seek forgiveness from God. And what he sees is money changers and he sees that it's a robber's den. Instead of a place where debts are paid and forgiven, it's a place where people are robbing from God's people. They're stealing. In fact, it's not a place that grants forgiveness anymore. Jesus looks at it, inspects it, and he sees that this temple, this house of God is empty of God's presence, and it in fact is bringing more and more sin to the people. Instead of forgiveness, their debt is continuing to increase. So Jesus is teaching Israel that their debts are unpayable but they will have forgiveness. In Jesus, they will have forgiveness. He is going to be the new temple, the new presence of God. The time has come for God to be present with his people. And if God is present with his people, if a holy God can dwell with sinful people, then sin must be absent. If God is present, sin is absent. If sin is present, 
God is absent. But he doesn't just say, forgive us our debts. He adds this next phrase, as we also have forgiven our debtors. They are to seek forgiveness from God as they themselves forgive. And then Jesus, this is the only verse that the only part of the prayer that he exposits upon, and he says in verse 14, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Does this bother you? Does this verse make you uncomfortable? It does me. There's something about that that strikes me in, the, in my heart and in my gut. What does it mean that if we don't forgive others, he won't forgive us? Later on in Jesus' ministry, he elaborates on this in Matthew 18, what Caleb read. Peter, somewhat self-righteously, comes up to Jesus and says, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus' response was, no, not seven, but 70 times seven. And then he related the parable of a king and a slave. The king was settling accounts with his slaves. And this one slave he came to, and this slave owed the king effectively 10 million weeks of work. An unpayable debt. Lifetimes to pay off that debt. The slave prostrated himself before the king and asked for patience and that he will, he will repay the debt somewhat humbly. The king, having compassion on the slave, forgives that unpayable debt. The slave then goes out, finds a debtor that um, owes him money, roughly 17 weeks of work. 17 weeks of work versus 10 million weeks of work. And he threw that slave into prison because he owed him a debt. That slave asked for patience and said that he would repay just like the wicked slave. But the wicked slave had no compassion. The king summoned that wicked slave upon hearing it and handed the man over to torturers. Torturers. Until he should repay all that was owed. 10 million weeks worth of work. The king released the debt, forgave the debt, but because that wicked slave would not forgive his debtor, he put that debt back on him. This may make us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, but we must remember a few things. That we owe, this is a parable obviously of Jesus as king, we owe God an unpayable debt. Our sins can never be paid for. Even though Israel had a sacrificial system where year by year they would offer sacrifices, their sins were never taken care of. Their sins were never dealt with in full. We have this unpayable debt to God. And it took the blood of his son to release us from it. Only Christ's blood is sufficient to forgive us for our, that unpayable debt of our sin. 
And so he gives us forgiveness to cover our sins. And he wants us to lift up that blood that has covered our sins. And he wants us to lift it up and forgive others their sins. After all, if we've been forgiven 10 million weeks of work because of our debts, why would we ever consider not forgiving somebody who owes us pocket change? Christ is calling us to have the heart of him, to have the heart of God, to have compassion on those who owe us debts because we've had our debts forgiven by his blood. Christian forgiveness is the promise not to hold sins that have been done against us and debts that have been incurred against us against the person. Christian forgiveness is to not hold the sins against them for the sake of the blood of Jesus. We release them from their debt because God has given us release from ours. And so, because the blood of Christ, the sacrifice that has been hoped for and and promised from the prophets and the law, The sacrifice of Jesus is the blood that brings together God and man. It pays off the penalty so that when Christ's blood is present, sins are absent. And when sins are present, Christ's blood is absent. And so we should forgive. We've sinned against God in grievous ways, but he forgives us. We've sinned against God in ways that people, we would be be ashamed of. We would not want anybody in this room to know. We've neglected his lordship over our life. We've placed idols in our heart. We've heard his word and turned around and done what he told us not to do. We've murdered others in our hearts. We've committed immorality, lied, cheat, stole, dishonored our parents, dishonored our family. Pride, pride, pride. Yet you're forgiven. We've hurt others. We've spoken things about people that is not true intentionally to try to hurt them. We speak things that are of this world rather than things of God. We look at things that we know we should not look at. We do things that we know we should not do. But God says you are forgiven. Your debt has been released. It's been paid. You can hold up and stand under the blood of Christ and I look down upon you, God says, as completely forgiven. Though you have sins, the scarlet blood of Jesus washes them all away and makes you white as snow. So we ask, that's how we've been forgiven, but how do we then forgive others? We hold up the blood of Jesus. The same blood that has forgiven you, we hold that up and we forgive them. 
but you may have been wronged. Someone may have done something to you long ago that is wicked and horrible. Someone may have hurt you in ways that are indescribable. Someone may have dishonored you, spoken ill of a loved one. Someone may have robbed something that you had. Somebody could have stolen your favorite something or other. They could have ruined a part of your life, a part of your happiness, a part of your plans. You may have been wronged, but Christ calls you to forgive. No matter how grievous the debt that somebody has incurred against you, Jesus says it's pocket change compared to what you have incurred against me. And he says, forgive them. And the good news is this, that Christ has come into this world, God with us, and he brings forgiveness. He brings man and God together, and that unpayable debt has now been covered with the blood of Jesus so that where Christ is present, sin is absent, even amongst brothers and sisters. The good news is not only can you be forgiven, you can forgive others. Christ's blood is completely sufficient for all of your sins and is sufficient for you to forgive others. He has wiped away a debt that is millions upon millions and the debt somebody owes you is pocket change. His death is sufficient. So if there's somebody in your life that has wronged you, forgive them. If there's somebody, a spouse, a father, a mother, a child, a friend, a neighbor, a stranger, and they've done something so terrible to you that you hold it against them, Christ tells you, forgive them. How often shall you forgive them? You're at number 75. You're keeping count. All you need is two more, and you're done. That's the wrong heart. Because you're keeping track. Forgiveness of sins is not holding that against them. It's not sort of saying, hey, I'm going to give this receipt and I'm not going to, I know you owe me this debt. I'm going to put it here. I'm not going to bring it up, but I'm going to keep it in my back pocket just so later on I'm going to bring it out. Once you get to 78, whew, I've got a packet full of debt receipts that I need to owe you. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying you forgive them. And if you're not forgiving them, he says, well, you're not holding up the blood of Jesus. Well, you may say, well, okay, I just, I just need to forgive. As long as I forgive them, then I'm good. Well, that's venturing into works now. We need to, by faith, believe in the promises of God, believe that Jesus' blood forgives us. And then that works out into our life because his blood covers us, washes us clean, and works out into our life where we forgive. It doesn't work the other way around. 
You forgiving somebody 77 times doesn't give you forgiveness. It shows that Christ's blood has been poured out for you. And we need to take that forgiveness by faith, and we need to give that forgiveness by faith. Let's explore a little bit of what being forgiven means. If you would turn to Psalm 103. We read this as a congregation earlier. But it'll bless us to review it again. The good news about what God's forgiveness of our sin is. Verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He's not going to continue to berate you for your sin. Paul tells us there is no, now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He doesn't bring this up over and over and over again. Forgiveness means, in a way, forgetting, releasing them from that debt. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Forgiveness means taking that sin and putting it as far away from that person as possible. It's complete release of the debt. It's not taking the debt receipt, putting it in your pocket, and holding it for later. Just so when you get in a fight with your loved one, you can bring it out and say, yeah, but two months ago you did this. No, forgiveness means you tear that receipt up, you burn it, and you never again bring that up. If you walk north, eventually you're going to end up walking south. But if you start walking east, or if you start walking west, you're never going to go east. You're going to keep going and far, keep going and going and going and going. And that's how far God has taken your sins away from you. Christ is present with you, which means because he is holy, your sins are far away. Your sins are far away. When Christ is present, sin is absent. Micah chapter 7 says, Who is a God like thee, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his people, of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He delights in his loving kindness. He again will have compassion on us. He will, not, he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Forgiveness means taking that sin and throwing it into the deepest part of the ocean, where no one can go, where no one sees it, where no one hears little rumors about it. It's away. It's deep-sixed. It's gone. Forgiveness means taking that sin and completely releasing a brother from that obligation. 
Jesus enters into our life and teaches us this is how to pray. This is how to pray to our Heavenly Father. The Father of Abraham, the Father of Israel, who has conquered and redeemed his people out from bondage and desires to restore his people from an exile away from himself and now to him. And he teaches us that we should seek his forgiveness. How often should we seek his forgiveness? Often. Because it's a constant reminder for us, just like we come here on Sundays, it's a constant reminder that we are sinners. Our debt is unpayable and we have incurred a debt this week. Sin by sin, where our debt is mounting and it's overwhelming, except the blood of Jesus covers us so we're forgiven. And we need to be reminded often that we are sinners because it reminds us often that we have a compassionate God who has forgiven us and who has covered us from that sin. In our prayers of confession, in our asking God to forgive us, we recognize, we need to recognize what our specific sins are. We need to know when we have done them. And we need to know the gravity of them. Because all of that, the, the, the magnitude of our sin, as we recognize that, we also recognize that Christ has taken all of that sin away from us as far as the east is from the west, and he has granted us forgiveness. The magnitude of our sin, as we review it and confess it, it reminds us the magnitude of Christ's love. Yet one of the errors people have is we heap guilt upon ourselves from sins in the past. We continue to sort of be bogged down and entangled in a sin that we've since asked forgiveness for. We don't feel forgiven. And that's a problem too. If we've confessed and Christ's blood has been shed for those sins, we need to recognize the magnitude and the fullness of Christ's blood for our transgressions. We need to accept the forgiveness that God has given to us. We need to realize that Christ has forgiven us of that sin that we hold on to. So we should not hold on and, and, and sort of be bogged down by the sins of the past, but at the same time, we need to recognize the fullness of our sinfulness because both of those things tell us and remind us of the sufficiency of Christ's blood. He was the sacrifice once for all time to bring God and man together. Jesus, when he heals the paralytic in Matthew 9, heard from the scribes that, hey, only, only God can forgive sin. And that's true. Only God can forgive sin. But then now he is working through those who are united to Christ to also forgive others. And this is why we can do that, because God is with us. He's taken on flesh 
in the first advent. He became man and lived among us, teaching us and showing us that if God is with us, then our sins are not. If God is with us, our sins are not. Yet when God is absent, our sins are ever-present. So as we live our life as Christians, because he is present, because he is king and he has come to bring forgiveness, not just to Israel, but so that Israel would bring forgiveness to the nations, as was promised to Abraham, that through Abraham, all of the world would be blessed. We need to recognize that Christ is now forming a new people of God around himself that we are a part of. He has granted forgiveness to us, and now he is delivering upon the promises of God by using us to go out into the world and to share forgiveness, to forgive others as we have been forgiven. We now are a part of that grand mission, that grand promise that God has given to bless the nations. And we do that under the blood of Christ, holding up the blood of Christ for everybody to see that we are forgiven, that we recognize our sinfulness, our debts, but we recognize that they've been paid by the costly blood of Jesus. And as we go around the world forgiving others of things that they have so grievously wronged us, as we show forgiveness, we are demonstrating the sufficiency of the blood of Christ for the world to see. As they see our peace and our love, our joy, our comfort together, forgiving one another, forgiving people who have wronged us of heinous, heinous, violent injury crimes, as we forgive them, they see the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. And they look and they behold Christ himself, Christ's body through people. The presence of Christ now is with us, with the people, because he has poured out his spirit into our hearts, the spirit of forgiveness, the spirit that covers us with Christ's blood. And the world is enmeshed in sin and guilt and shame with no forgiveness. They heap it upon people and they continue to heap that guilt and shame on them. They distort sin to be good and goodness to be sin. They seek out a scapegoat to try to put all of their guilt and shame and sins on. They're looking for a way out. The world is looking for a way out of their sins, but yet they keep grasping at nothing. They keep grasping at more sin. They want forgiveness, but they do not find it in Christ. And they do not grant it. And when they see that Christians, the body of Christ, forgives one another, they see that the body of Christ has been forgiven by an all-sufficient Savior. So we demonstrate to them the forgiveness of Christ, true forgiveness, 
Forgiveness for our sins against God and against each other. Forgiveness that can only be had through the sufficient blood of Jesus. Forgiveness that only comes because Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the King. He is our God and he reigns. He reigns because he has gone to the cross to shed his blood for you, to forgive you. He has come to take away our sins and to be present with us in this world. Please stand and we'll pray and give him thanks. Almighty Father, we're so grateful that you have forgiven us much. Each of us can stand here and think of the sins that we've done in our past, the sins that have entangled us, the sins that weigh us down, the burden that we carry. And yet we are so thankful that Jesus has come to shed his blood so that all of those sins can be forgiven. He has come to lift off that burden, that guilt, that shame, so that we can confidently know that there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And Father, we're grateful that that forgiveness has been bought with such costly blood that it's enough and it's sufficient not only for our forgiveness, but for us to be able to forgive others. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us a heart to forgive. Give us a heart to show the compassion of Christ when others wrong us. It's difficult, Lord, so we need strength. But we know that this is something that is very serious to you. As we show forgiveness, we show that we have been forgiven. And so we thank you, we praise you in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.